It's a great problem when everyone wants to talk. If anyone would like to just do my job for me up here, feel free. I'll pass, I'll pass the microphone off to you. Uh, well, welcome everyone to Crossroads uh, Lompoc Campus. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tyler. I have the great joy and privilege of being the Lompoc Campus pastor here for Crossroads. And we do our best every single week, regardless of what text we're in, regardless of what series we're in, uh, we do our best to present you with the person of Jesus. And how we do that is through uh, a book called the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to raise your hand up. One of our uh, ushers or someone will grab one for you in the back as well. For those of us who are in small groups, we have small groups going on right now. Not, oh, uh, sorry. We have build your own small groups, not not so small groups, build your own small groups. What that is, it's giving you the freedom to gather with people and talk about what the Lord is doing uh, in your life, in your family, what the Lord's revealing to you at church. Uh, so we have note pages in the back. If you want to grab one of those as well for notes, feel free to get up now and do so. Grab that with a pen. Or if you want to know the small group questions, because we do have questions every single week, uh, those are on our website. If you go to crossroadscentralcoast.com, scroll down to the very bottom, you'll see a little tab that says small group questions. Those are already updated. We have the current week, which is today in those questions. So you can follow along with me and know what you're gonna say for your small group. Trying to avoid getting to the text because we're in Revelation. Revelation chapter three, we are concluding the seven letters to the seven churches this morning. And this morning we're gonna be tackling the church at Laodicea. It's gonna be Revelation chapter three, Verses 14 through 22. If you're new to the Bible, it's in the very, very, very back. It's the last book of the Bible. If you come to the concordance with a bunch of words or the maps, you've gone maybe a hair too far. Go back a couple pages. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. I'll give you a moment to get there. Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 22. This is what it says. Verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Also, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing, uh, not just in this church, but in your church, your global church, Lord. Uh, you are on the move, active. It's a living organism, not an organization, and we are blessed and honored to be a part of it. Lord, help us to open our eyes to see what it is that you have for us this morning. 
Let us be attentive and, and diligent to be always on the lookout, listening for what it is that you have for us. We love you, Lord. We thank you. It's in your mighty name we pray. And everyone said, amen. The seven letters to the seven churches. We have so far gone through Revelation chapter 1 and 2, concluding chapter 3 today. We have gone through six churches already. Very briefly, I'm just going to go over what those churches were. Church 1 was Ephesus. And, and the problem with Ephesus was they were a church that loved doctrinal purity. They strive to know their Bible, know it well, and understand as best they could the complexities of how God worked. And yet the Lord Jesus comes and says, I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. See, the Lord is, is saying something to each and every one of these churches, and if we had to determine what it is he's saying to the church at Ephesus, he's, he's saying, return back to the love at which you had at first. To the church at Smyrna, it was a persecuted church. It was a church that was going through massive amounts of persecution. And the Lord says, but you have been faithful unto me this far. There is no correction. There is no thing that they have to resolve. The Lord is simply commending them for their faithfulness to him. What Jesus is saying to the church at Smyrna is continue to be faithful to me. We had the church at Pergamum, which was a church that had compromised its ethics with the world. It began to take not just what Jesus wanted and what the church had established, but also the secular ideas of the world and sexuality and began to blend the two together, doing their best to be able to live not just for Jesus, but also they wanted to live for the desires of the world. And what Jesus is saying to them is discern what is right and fruitful and what is not. Be discerning in what you're doing. We have the church at Thyatira. We have a, a, a church that is tolerant to everything coming in. There is no right or wrong. It's subjective truth. You can do really whatever you want. They're not willing to actually speak the truth. And Jesus is saying, don't tolerate, but be thoughtful with what you're doing. To the church at Sardis, this is a church that was, was shallow in its understanding. They had a reputation of being good, but Jesus actually says, you are dead. And he's begging them, wake up from your sleep. And to the church at Philadelphia, it's a struggling small church. And the Lord says, but you are strong. You may be, you may be small, but there is a door that is in front of you that no one will be able to close. What Jesus is saying to him is, press on, continue doing what you're doing. And then we come to the church at Laodicea, where we see, I know your works. This is Revelation, in the book of Revelation, this is probably the most quoted verse, or the quoted uh, church in Revelation. This is, this is the one that everyone seems to have some understanding of, has heard a message before. And with that comes an idea of what this text is actually saying. Maybe it's a preconceived notion of something you heard or maybe you're understanding. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to leave all of that behind. Any preconceived ideas that you have of the church at Laodicea, let's go ahead and set those aside and let's journey through the text together what is happening. Uh, it's funny, there's an old, old story by Hans Christian Andersen. We, we talk about it quite often. It's a, it's a short story called The Emperor's New Clothes. And what happens is these two con men 
convince the emperor that they're able to make clothes. But, but the new clothes that they're going to make him are only able to be seen by smart, intelligent, wise people. So they begin to load up the spool with nothing, make clothes and say, don't worry, we're going to make the most beautiful clothes. And these clothes can only be seen by the wise and the thoughtful people, the good people. And so they make no clothes at all. And they hold nothing up and they go, look at how beautiful this is. And in his fear of being seen as unintelligent, unwise, or, or frankly outright stupid, he goes, man, those are wonderful clothes. Look at how beautiful they are. My gosh. Unwilling to recognize that there's actually nothing there at all in fear that he would be seen as a certain way. So he takes off his clothes, puts on no clothes at all, and then proceeds to journey through the city wearing his new clothes. And everyone in the city knows what's happening. They, they know that he has been conned. But if they say, Emperor, you're wearing nothing at all, then they will be seen as stupid, unintelligent, not wise. So they, they all go, man, those are beautiful clothes. Everyone joins in until finally a kid talks loudly. I don't know if you've ever been around a kid that they just don't know how to whisper at all. <laughs> they may think. I'm actually, I can't whisper at all either. My wife gives me a hard time. If we're in a movie, my, my concept of whispering is if I can't hear myself talk, no one can hear me talk. So I have to say something to where I can hear it. So you know how kids are. They just say something. And sometimes you're like, I wish you would have said that a lot quieter. <laughs> this young kid goes, mom, why is the emperor naked? And it allows everyone there to go, he's speaking the truth. But it's amazing how we can convince ourselves of something that we know not to be true. I don't know if you've ever ran across someone who they convince themselves of a lie to where they actually believe it's the truth. The church at Laodicea was one of massive amount of prosperity. They, the, the city was massive. They, had medic, they were on the forefront of everything medical. They had, they had great prosperity to where they were able to build their city on their own accord, not needing the help of Rome and surrounding cities. This was a proud city. And the church at Laodicea was no different. They were a church that had massive amounts of pride, but not pride in what the Lord is doing, but pride in prosperity. Pride in what they were able to accomplish on their own. They were an apathetic and affluent church. And they had fooled themselves into thinking something about themselves. Verses 14, we see the revelation of Jesus. We're going to wrestle through all of this text. Verse 14, the revelation of Jesus comes. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen. My, my wife talked about it in worship today. This, this truly means, so be it. Revel, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, him being Jesus. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen, or so be it, to God for his glory. All of the promises of God, the beginning and the end, the the beginning and the conclusion of God and his blessings are found in the person of Jesus. So they start, he starts off by introducing himself of the words of the amen. And then he reveals himself as the faithful and true witness. Contrast this to the church at Laodicea who thought they were true, 
who thought they were pure, who thought they were righteous, and yet Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. I am the amen, and I am the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Not the, the beginning or original creation, but he is the ruler, the source, the origin of all of God's creation. Jesus was present at the beginning of time, as Colossians would say. And the faithful and true witness. See, they had squandered their witness. And so Jesus comes and says, listen, I'm about to take the stand. I have some things against you. But as I do that, I need you to understand that I am faithful and I am the true witness. Everything I say, if, if you've ever been to court, listen, the witness is there to bring charges against someone, to corroborate a story, to tell them what happened. And the church at Laodicea had thought that they were this. And Jesus is coming and going, listen, I'm going I'm to take the stand, but I am faithful and true witness. You are not going to be able to fool me. What I say is true, so be attentive and listen. We see the revelation in the true nature of who Jesus is in 14. In verse 15, we begin to see the witness of Jesus and the reality of the church at Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth or literally vomit you from my mouth. Now, many of us have probably heard this before, talking about you need to make a decision. You can't be on the fence. You can't be like, I want a little bit of both. But you either have to be completely against Jesus or you need to make the decision to be hot and on fire for Jesus. And listen, I have heard that talked for, and I would agree, you need to decide what you're doing. But what Jesus says here is, I wish that you were either cold or hot. So in, if we read it that way, do we think that Jesus wishes that we would fully reject him? Probably say no. That's, that's not the desire and heart of Jesus. His heart is that everyone would come to know him, and he's eagerly waiting for the day to come back, but he is long-suffering with his people, longing that everyone would come to know Jesus. So if you understand the church at Laodicea, uh, the, 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 the oldest history tells us that there was water sources because Laodicea did not have good water. Uh, they weren't able to drink their water. Praise be to God. Lompoc, we got good water. I don't drink it anymore. I drank tap water for the past 32 years of my life, but this year I switched to filtered water. But I'm so glad to live in a city where we have good water. Uh, we don't now, when it's in a drought, it's one thing, but for the most part, we, we have good water, and we have a lot of it. Um, there's other cities that don't have water, or if you're on property and on a well, you understand the tension of the necessity of water, and what happens if you don't have it, and how are you going to get it? Church at Laodicea had all this prosperity, everything that you could ever imagine, but they lacked water. So what they decided to do was in their abundance of finances, they were able to bring in water from two cities. Laodicea brought in water from Heropolis and Colossae, which were neighboring cities around them, and it would come in from these cities. Now, how many of you like the cold brew coffee we got here at Crossroads. No I, I, no, I won't take any offense. I make it myself, so, you know, glad two of you like it. I, 
I'm glad two of you do. Made a fresh batch yesterday, <laughs> all right? We got nitro cold brew coffee, made fresh by yours truly, all right? And I see people pull that tap. It's nice and cold. The nitrogen infused. It's a beautiful thing. There's people that love cold coffee. I know people that literally, that's all they drink. It can be 30 degrees outside, and they're like, I want cold coffee. And then, and then there's people like me. I don't normally drink a lot of cold coffee, but I'll drink hot coffee all day long. 8, 8 p.m., it could be 8 p.m., 80 degrees outside, and uh, a, a hot cup of coffee will sound very refreshing and good. I'll drink hot coffee all day long. Now, how many of you have ever left your hot coffee in the car overnight, and you get there the next morning, and that's all you had? Like, you, you went to the ground drawer, there's nothing left, you don't have any coffee, and then you get to your car, and you're like, oh my gosh, praise be to God. He has provided me with a cup of coffee in my time of need. And you take that coffee that's been sitting there all night long, and you drink it, and you're just like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's horrible. But we'll drink it. I remember being a coffee roaster, and one of the tests to know if we actually did a good job roasting the coffee and brewing it is we would leave it all night long in a car, come back the next day lukewarm. And if we were like, that's halfway decent, actually. We knew it was like we did a good job. If it was horrible, then it's like, well, maybe it's just because it's lukewarm. There, there's something that we understand of when something gets left out and it's lukewarm, it is disgusting, and you want to spit it out of your mouth. Why is that? Because lukewarm, if you have something hot, it can be medicinal. When you're sore throat and you have a, a, a nice cup of herbal hot tea, that is useful. Ice-cold water straight from the spring, and you're, it's, you're hot, you're exhausted, and you drink nice cold water, and it's so refreshing and good for you. And lukewarm water is good for nothing. <laughs> it serves no purpose. It's not useful for anything. What Jesus is saying here is he's like, listen, I, I wish you were hot or cold. And this was something that they understood. I wish you were the ice cold water that you got or the piping hot water that you got because I can find uses for both of those things. But because you are lukewarm, I, wanna, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The strongest language that we probably have in all of the seven churches, the letters, Jesus is saying, listen, it's not that I will remove your lampstand like he said to other churches. He's literally saying, I will vomit you from my mouth. You are good for nothing. Useless. I wish that you were either hot or cold. See, within the church, it's, it's difficult sometimes to read these passages. Um, I think there's an aspect of as we, we wrestle through the seven churches, it's important that we wrestle through these well and we look not just as a church but also individually as, as Jesus will tell the church at the end. Uh, he makes it personal that we wrestle through, Lord, is there something that you want to steer in a different direction in me? Uh, let me tell you, many of you probably have seen Christians that you would go, man, they are lukewarm. They're good, good for nothing. There's, there's a whole movement within Western Christianity that actually is more of a moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a big couple words, but let me break it down for you. They've turned God into someone that they go, I just want you to give me good morals, and, and I'll determine what those morals are, but give me good morals that I can hold on to. 
Uh, be, be a magic genie in the bottle for my therapy that I can come to you and ask things of you. And I believe that you, in deism, there is a higher power. You may be far and abstract, but what you're only there to do is to give me a good moral compass and to be a therapy doctor for me. And this is what the Christian church in Western culture has began to turn into. They've, they've swapped some of the things, the difficult passages of Scripture, and they begin to go, hey, listen, we'll determine what, what we determine to be morally good. We may pick and choose a couple from God, and we may pick and choose a couple from society. And, and we're always desiring this aspect of, of we need a, a therapeutic doctor to help us. And, and really, if you break it down, what that is saying from a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic part is just make me feel good. I don't want to go through hard times. I, I want you just to make me feel good. I, I don't want to have to listen to difficult things, but just give me the passages that make me go like, oh, I like that. I will vomit you from my mouth is probably not at the top of your list of passages that make you go like, oh, praise the Lord. Like, I like that one. It's like a warm blanket by a fire. No, that's one that we would go, okay, I don't really like that. Uh, I, I just, I'll, I'll pass that one off. We have a cosmic therapist and a divine butler is essentially what we turn God into. And listen, we all sometimes tend to do this. If we're honest with ourselves, and this is where you have to be able to be honest with yourself, sometimes you view God as a divine butler that is simply there to give you and bring you what you desire and want. And sometimes we turn him into a cosmic therapist where we're able to unload all of the problems that we see with the world and society around us. And God, you just need to do something about it. All right, there you go. I unload it on you. Amen. Let's go ahead and go back to my day. That's what we turn God into. And, and I would say this, this is a, a lukewarm. This is a useless religion. You're practically, you're, you're a practical, I won't say that. I take it back. <laughs> it's a bit, that's a bit strong. Um, you, you've exchanged a pure, beautiful, sometimes difficult relationship with Jesus for a God who you turn into whatever you want. And that is no God at all. Jesus comes to the church at Laodicea, says, listen, I wish you were useful for anything, but because you're not, I will spit you out of my mouth. And now, now let's continue down this road and journey, because if you're anything like me, sometimes there's this unhealthy fear that I go, God, where am I in this story? What's going on? Is this where I'm at? Let me, if, if you're asking yourself that question, this is probably not where you're at. There's an honest sincerity, openness to conviction where you're going, Jesus, help me navigate through. But it's healthy for all of us to determine, Lord, where are areas where I'm maybe not being useful to you? This is what happened at the church at Laodicea. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. This was their problem. I need nothing. There is nothing that I need. I have it all. I have prosperity. I have riches. And I need absolutely 
nothing. There's an interesting parable in Matthew chapter 13, one of the most famous parables. It's the parable of the sower. Let me tell you the breakdown that Jesus gives for one of the aspects of the seed sown on the ground. This is 13 verses 32. As for what was sown among thorns, that is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches choke the word out and it proves unfruitful. The parable of the sower, we see a sower sowing seed and he's sowing it carelessly, which I absolutely love because any farmer would go, that's of value. Don't sow it everywhere, but put it where you believe it to be the most fruitful and where will you will have the most yield from your work. But this parable shows a sower sowing seed all over the place. Hard ground, birds come and get it. Some of it's in good ground where it takes root and some of it is in the weeds. And Jesus says that one who is sown in the weeds is one who the deceitfulness of riches and cares of the world comes alongside and chokes it out. See, the problem of the church at Laodicea was not that they were rich. I want you to hear me on this. For, for those of us who live in the United States, we are extremely blessed and rich. Although you might find yourself in a different economical tax bracket than other people in this room, the fact that we all live in the United States, more than likely every single one of us drove here. We are immensely rich. We have great prosperity. The problem is not the prosperity. The problem is not the riches. Okay, The commission and call is not to go and make yourself poor. Jesus isn't saying that you need to go and give everything, although that's what he commissioned some to do. The call of the Laodicean church to return back was not saying, give everything that you have and make yourself dirt poor. It's not what he tells them. The problem is not that they were rich and they had prospered. The problem is, is that their riches and prosperity had convinced them that they need nothing. They have it all together. Everything I could ever want and dream, I've gotten for myself. And they've pushed God to the side, saying, we no longer need you. We have influence and we have prosperity. What do we need you for? This was the problem and sin of the church at Laodicea. Listen, we have a guy like Abraham who had extreme riches who prospered greatly. We have people like David and Solomon who had riches beyond measure. We have people like Barnabas who had immense property and riches. He had prospered greatly. And all of these people were able to still recognize their desperate need for a savior. Listen, the, the, the problem is not riches in this story. The problem is that they had determined that there is nothing more that they needed from God, we, we desperately need Jesus. I don't care which tax bracket you find yourself in. My hope and prayer is that you go, Jesus, I desperately need you. And if, you're, if your monetary finances and the prosperity that you've gotten in your hand is standing in the way of you being able to go, Jesus, I need you, then maybe there is some life changes that you need to make. I'll leave that up to you and Jesus. Jesus. 
I won't tell you what to do. The Lord has given us the Holy Spirit. When you feel him stirring and moving and convicting, my hope and prayer is as a church, we would stand behind you and be there for you along the step of the way as we journey together to say, I desperately need Jesus. We desperately need the grace of God. We need his mercy. We need the gospel. We need the good news of Jesus because they have exchanged their riches and prosperity for something else. They have exchanged actual gold, and Jesus is telling them, no, 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 I wish that you would buy gold from me refined by, refined by fire so that you may be riches. Listen, this isn't saying that we need to pay Jesus to get a divine spiritual gold that we can get. That's not what he's advocating for. What he's saying is, listen, you're going to go and buy and desire and long for something. I wish it would be for me. I counsel you to wear white garments. This was a city that was known for clothing. They had this black linen that was beautiful and expensive, and they would wear it everywhere as a sign of their prosperity. And Jesus is saying, no, I wish you would wear white garments so that you may clothe yourself, clothe your shame and your nakedness. They had clothing, and Jesus is saying, no, you're naked. You need to exchange those for the garments that I give you and salve to anoint your eyes so you may see. This was a, a community on the forefront of medical things, okay? And there's a word for things. I don't know what it is, though. So I just went with medical. What would that word be? They're on the forefront of medical exploration. That sounds like a good one. They were exploring what they could do medically for people. They were testing, experimenting, and they determined that there was this salve you could make and put it on people's eyes, and it would help the health benefits for their eyes in sight. What Jesus says is, no, 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 I wish you would put salve on your eyes from me to anoint your eyes so that you can actually see. You think you have all of these things, and you're, you're poor. You're naked. You're blind. Verses 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Here we see the promise of Jesus and the remedy for the church at Laodicea. Verses 19 to the end. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. The beauty that I love from this passage. As in, you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You're blind, naked. You're, you can't see. You're poor, pitiable. He says, those whom I love, I reprove, I correct, I discipline. He is still stating a love that he has for his church and the people at Laodicea. It's not too late. He's calling them to change. Those whom I love, I reprove, and I discipline. So we see the command of Jesus. This is the command of Jesus to us as well. Be zealous and repent. Those, those two things are almost like an oxymoron to me. Like when I read that, my brain is so contorted because I go, be zealous. All right, like I'm young, I'm fired. Like I get stoked really easy. Like I understand, I understand a sense of zealousness, of a pure joy and excitement where it's almost uncontrollable and uncontainable. And then he says, be zealous and repent. And I go, that's not normally something I'm excited for. Um, that wouldn't be on my top five list of what are, what are the things I'm zealous for? Repent, repentance. That's probably pretty low on the list. Uh, and Jesus says, no, no, be zealous 
Be passionate, be fiery, be excited, and repent. I love this because it's this simple act that I don't care how long you've been following Jesus for. There's always a desire that we have to come and repent. And it isn't something that we should be ashamed of. This isn't something that we come with our head held low going, Jesus, I hope this, I hope this isn't the time where you send me away, where I'm embarrassed and ashamed. But we come to the Father with open arms going, Jesus, this is what makes me eligible to come to you in the first place. The sin of the Laodiceans was I don't need anything. So what's the remedy? I need everything. Jesus, I desperately need you and your grace, your mercy. There is no amount of experience, there is no amount of maturity that puts me in a place where I go, Jesus, I no longer need you. No, I always need Jesus. And repentance helps me understand my place. Repentance is truly worship to God if we choose to see it as such. Worship is putting God in his rightful place. And when we come to God, in repentance, we recognize where he is and where we are. So we are come. We come and we be zealous. And then he gives us an invitation. Be zealous and repent. For behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat and with him and he with me. Once we are zealous and we worship God with repentance. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And here it becomes personal. Listen, the whole letter up to this point is written to a church and a group of people. And suddenly, Jesus breaks that barrier and goes, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens it, if, if a single person would hear me knocking and open that door, I will come in I will eat with him and he with me. There's this beautiful union that we have with Jesus, but there's also a communion aspect with Jesus. For, for those of us who are married, we can understand this very clearly. I took marriage vows almost 13 years ago. I, am, I have a union with my wife, Rebecca, where we are married. But that doesn't mean that I spend any time with her at all. Like, I, I, could, I could live in a different state. We would still have the union of marriage. Never have to communicate with her. We would still have the union of marriage. I would never have to see her, encourage her, love her. None of those things, and we would still have the union of marriage. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, if anyone listens and hears me knocking at the door and opens it, not only will we have a union, but we will have communion together. I will come in, literally, I will eat with him and he with me. Jesus doesn't desire just a union with you. He doesn't desire just to go like, all right, that's my child. I've adopted them, awesome. And then he's just like, good luck to you. That, that's not how Jesus works. What Jesus longs for, the purpose of the cross of Christ was not just for union, but for communion. And Ephesians chapter 1 would go in this great detail of saying, listen, we are in Christ. There is a union and communion that we have with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And that is the purpose 
of what Jesus is saying here. Listen, if anyone hears, and I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him, and I will eat with him and him with me. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Here we have the promise of Jesus. We've seen the command and the invitation and now the promise. The promise is, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Also, I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. For he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. The promise of Jesus is that he will come and eat with us and that we will sit on the throne with him. How is that possible? Because we are in Jesus. Us and Jesus are one. We have been adopted and we are now co-heirs with Christ. Jesus is already seated on that throne and the invitation is, listen, to the one who conquers, you will be there with me also. As we close today, I want to encourage you I want to plead with you. I don't care how much prosperity you have. I don't care what, what you've built for yourself. I don't care how big your house is, how many bedrooms you have. I don't care the kind of car you drive. Let me tell you as a personification of Jesus, all of those things are worthless and pointless. If the prosperity you have is making you go, I need nothing. I rely on Jesus for nothing. Let me tell you, you are poor, pitiable, broke, naked, and blind. But you can have great prosperity. And if you find your hope in the person of Jesus, recognizing, Lord, you've blessed me beyond measure. But I need you every day. Every moment, I need your direction, your wisdom, your guidance. That is the appropriate heart. And that is what the church at Laodicea lacked. They had become useless, good for nothing, because they were lukewarm. The encouragement of Jesus is, listen, be hot or cold, be useful for something. And if you don't know what to do, let me encourage you. Jesus stands at the door and he's, he's knocking. What you need to do, let him in. Don't just have a union with Jesus. Have communion with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Listen for the direction in which he's calling you and your family to go. Do the next right thing that's in front of you. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the letter to the seven churches. As Lord, these are seven letters to seven, seven literal cities and seven literal churches that John was writing to. But Lord, even though they were written 2,000 years ago, they are written for your church today. They are written for your body today. So Lord, as we, as we think back and ponder, what, what a blessing it is that these seven churches, most of them you had charges to bring against them, and yet you would say, listen, the ones that I love are the ones that I correct and discipline. So Jesus, it is not a bad thing. It's not a daunting thing. It's not an intimidating thing to read these seven letters and for us to introspectively go, Lord, 
I pray that you would convict our hearts of the areas where maybe you're saying, listen, I see what you're doing, but there's a couple things. Soften our hearts to hear. If we've made doctrinal purity too much of an emphasis, then I would, hear, I would pray that we would hear you saying, return back to the love that you had at first. Be zealous, authentic in following me. If it's to be, continue to be faithful, that we're going through things, but you see, man, you're so faithful. You've been persevering and continue to be faithful that we would receive that encouragement. If we've compromised with the world, then help us to be discerning in our families, for us and for our church. If we've become too tolerant, Lord, help us to see that there is one path, a narrow path, and it's in the person of Jesus. And that is not bad news, but it is good news because where there was no way, you made a way. If we think we're alive and yet we're spiritually dead, Lord, I pray we would heed the call to wake up. Lord, if we're struggling, it's like the church at Philadelphia. You are strong. You may be small, but you are strong. And you're continuing to call us to press on. Or if we've become an apathetic and affluent church that thinks we need nothing, Lord, help us to hear you saying, return back to me. Be zealous and repent. Lord, we love you. We thank you. You're doing a mighty and powerful work. And it's only through you that that's possible, Jesus. We love you. We thank you. It's in your mighty name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Can we give Jesus a hand clap of praise this morning?